You're listening to Train Healthy Cops, where we talk about mental fitness and mental fitness tools for cops and their agencies. And I'm your host, Gentry Giles. In this episode, I'm going to share with you my interview with Brian Flatt. Brian is the training coordinator at the Texas Municipal Police Association. And let me tell you, he has, he has an incredible story. I don't want to spoil it, but Brian was violently attacked early in his career as a corrections officer, and it really set the tone for his career. We'll go into detail on that, and he'll, he'll really hash out that story. We also discuss peer support at length, and now Brian has about 24 years of law enforcement under his belt, and he worked very hard with the Texas Municipal Police Association to equip other officers so they can thrive. Uh, so without further ado, here is my interview with Brian Flatt. Brian, thanks for being here. Well, I'm glad I'm here. How are you this morning? I'm doing good, and I'm uh, I'm really excited to have this conversation. I think peer support uh, gets thrown around a lot as a buzzword or maybe even like a blanket word for mental health programs, um, and when it's really just kind of one part of an entire ecosystem. So if you can just set it up, what is a peer support program? I think to me, the, the peer, a, a peer support program is having qualified, competent individuals in the organization, whether they are full-time employees or they may be volunteer staff, something like that, uh, that are there to offer support, encouragement, uh, assistance, in all stages of life, not just when, when and after a potentially traumatic event takes place. It's having the support there from day one saying, hey, there, there's going to be in the world of law enforcement that we're speaking of. You, you, you go through the good, bad and the ugly, and there's going to be a lot of it depending on where you work. And it's not just about the work stuff. It's about the home life and everything else, the health, the wellness uh, of your body and mind. And just letting people know, hey, we're, we're here to help guide you. Uh, we're, none of us are perfect. And we're, we're here for the support system and to help you along the way to further, whether it's going to be a 20-year, 30-year, 40-year career, to get you through this. And knowing that you at any stage, any time, day or night, that you have somebody to reach out to and just say, hey, man, I'm struggling with something right now. You know, do you have a second to talk? And not being labeled with that the thing that's been going around for for quite a while now you know the stigma that's out there of being labeled quote-unquote crazy knowing that you can reach out at any point in time say hey man i'm going through something and i don't feel comfortable talking with anybody else but i know you and i trust you and that's one of the things that on the peer support part is having somebody that is trusted not just put into a position and not having the trust of the people that they're there to help if that makes sense Right. So that brings up a good uh, argument that I've seen and I've made myself. And so the word peer is obviously very important because you want someone, you know, a lieutenant isn't a peer to just a beat cop. But I see, you know, once you go through peer support training and you get specially trained to help, what I think uh, might happen sometimes, and I've seen this happen, is all of a sudden the peer support guys become like the cops for the cops. So it's like, these are the guys you call when you need help. But I think as officers, we are the guys that people call when they need help. And so once you tell an agency, Hey, there's this select group of people 
that are actually better at dealing with your problems than you are, they say that now they're not my peer anymore because you trained them to be better than me. And so how do you avoid kind of using peer support as just a um, resume builder or something that's really putting these peer support guys up on a pedestal? How do you build a culture where this is actually coming alongside officers rather than uh, just using that as a, uh, a tag on the resume or as a title to just boast that now I'm better than all the other officers? I think, uh, based off what you just said, Gentry, is if, you know, in the perfect world, uh, if once it was introduced um, or that person or that team was introduced um, to, like, l let's, let's say going into the academy, right, uh, starting it there or right as soon as they, they get hired on day one, uh, here, here's the additional benefits that you have working for this organization is we also have specially trained peers. These are people that work, have or have worked and done the same thing that you're, that you are about to do. And they've kind of been there, done that. And they, they do have this special training to assist because it's peer, peer support is not for everybody as in, I mean, I mean, peer support is for everybody, but not being a peer support uh, on a peer support team. Um, I've, because of what we do in all my travels and, and I've heard it many times where people have said, whenever I ask, you know, does your agency have a peer team and they go, yeah, but I'm never speaking to anybody, uh, at my agency. And they, you know, have their personal stories of non-trust with certain individuals. And I get that. And you, you have to have that trust there. And that's why the vetting uh, of the peer team members is vitally important. The training of them is vitally important. And of course, I mean, there's, there's always going to be that person who says, I, I, I don't care who they are, or how well black they are. I'm not talking to anybody within my organization. Well, okay, well, that's great. Let us direct you over to this other peer team that's, you know, either next door or somewhere else in the state to, you know, that way you have a resource, but, I would hope and I would truly hope that nobody does peer support to be a resume builder. I would hope that they would do it because this this is what I can bring to the table. This is how I can help uh, an individual through a trying time and to to truly get people to buy in to the peer team concept and not just, you know, hey, this I'm, I'm in this elite title. Um, I, I think if it was explained well enough, hey, these people have this additional training and you, you have to have training. And it's not just a one and done. You should continually do your training just like everything else in our world. That they have this training and they're, they're, they're here for you. They're not, of course, the attitude, you know, Surely somebody's not going to come in and go, okay, well, I'm a peer. So, you know, I'm, I'm in this elite status up here. It should be a very humble position, uh, knowing that you're going to be the recipient of additional stories about trauma as well, because you, you have to deal with that as well, depending on how much peer support you do, if that makes sense. Yeah. And let me, let me tell you a little story. Cause I, 
wholeheartedly agree with you. And I just want to bring, I kind of call it clouds and dirt. So just the theories and the ideas of what everything, everything that should happen is clouds. That's ideas, ideals, and then dirt is what actually happens in agencies. And so, um, when I, so when I got into my shooting in 2019 and then I got into several fights really soon after I needed a lot of help and, um, ended up just talking to people that were within my network. I just, asked, hey, who should I talk to about all these issues I'm having? And eventually, through the grapevine, I found this guy who works at a church, you know, that I don't even go to, and I ended up sitting down with him, and he helped a lot. About five months, or maybe six, after my shooting, the chief calls me in his office. He sits me down, and he says, hey, Gentry, I want to get your opinion of our peer support program, because you're the most recent critical incident, and uh, we're trying to really, you know, iron out the details and I said, what peer support program? <laughs> I never, I didn't even know we had one. Um, that would have been awesome if I had had people come alongside me who had either been in shootings or other critical incidents and gone and got coffee. And I just kind of put together my own peers in my life because I knew I needed that. But the agency actually, uh, I totally slipped through the cracks. And just about two months ago, had a big meeting with a few leaders in local law enforcement here from different agencies. And one of them said, you know, we're all volunteer, so we all do regular jobs. He's an investigator. Most of them are just regular patrolmen. And so they're just, they're adding this peer support responsibility. And so when I get busy, you know, I'm the leader of the peer support program. And if I have a bunch of cases on my desk and I have a lot of things going on, I need to interview some suspects and some victims uh, you know, and I know an officer goes through a critical incident or a shooting. I know, oh man, we should really debrief this, but I just don't have time. And so eventually it just gets blown off. And so uh, they slip through the cracks and the peer support program doesn't actually activate. Uh, and hopefully, and I would like to believe that this was just a local issue, but I can imagine that this isn't just a local issue, just knowing how really knowing how government works because most of our peer support systems are within a government organization. Uh, how do we really avoid things slipping through the cracks? And primarily if I had known that peer support was an option, I'd likely would have taken advantage of it. And then if those officers that do slip through the cracks knew that they were slipping through the cracks, they could, they could say, Hey, I'm slipping through the cracks. I need some attention. Uh, how do we avoid those, slip-ups or those maybe even neglect um, that that happens in the real world once things really uh, get real and the rubber hits the road people fall apart and the the system kind of falls apart so what makes a good well-oiled peer support program I think going back to the original of okay first of all we need to find out and then not even having a, a checklist, if you will, going through saying, hey, do we actually need this like a needs assessment? You know, do we need this at our agency? Every agency needs it, no matter how big they are. Uh, okay, first of all, who do we think would be good at this? Have some some internal interviews with some qualified people on board, even if it's just monitoring the, you know, the discussion, the interview. Because some people might be like, oh, I, I could do that. You know, no big deal. And then going through and said, okay, here's the, you know, selection committee, if you will, 
finding the appropriate training to get them through. And then once that's done, then making sure that everybody on board, everybody within the agency or the area, depending on how big the, the agency is, says, hey, we, we have the this select group of people that have been trained for this, and this is what it's for. And you can reach out day or night for whatever the issue to get help. And I think what's whenever I, whenever you had mentioned about there at where you were working, that you didn't know that it was available. My question would be, okay, well, when did they implement that program? You know, however many years ago did that get implemented? And maybe it was just an oversight on somebody's part of, okay, well, why wasn't that introduced to everybody that went through your academy, like in the academy setting, like part of your first week in the academy, hey, we're bringing these people in to talk to you about this. And then again, maybe halfway through and then at the very end, because you have a lot of stressors in the academy, just going through the academy itself and having that constant reminder of, okay, if y'all remember a few months ago, we told you about this and then now we're here and then now you're at the end, I want to give you that quick reminder again, hey, this resource is here to help. And then every supervisor within the organization should know or have known about that. Um, and I, maybe it was one of those things just from an outsider looking in, maybe it was one of those things of, hey, he seems okay, you know, and still using that stigma that's there of, well, I want to get involved. I think they're doing all right because it goes back to the typical when something goes wrong in somebody's life and you see him and the one of the most popular questions is, how are you doing? Well, how do you think I'm doing, right? Well, what I've heard uh, consistently, if a critical incident of whatever magnitude takes place, and there's this, how, whatever the time period is from the time, let's say I was your coworker, and let's say it's been a day, week, or whatever since I've seen you, one or two things takes place. I either just say, hey, how are you doing? That, you know, because it's, it's, it's easy to say that. Or I just don't say anything at all because I don't know what to say. So then if I don't say anything and the next person doesn't say anything and the next person doesn't say anything, well, now you are like, well, crap, nobody's even talking to me now, right? And so going back to that of having the qualified people that are well-trained, that are con continually training to do that, and not just leaving them there for as a reactive unit, right? Like most of what law enforcement is, is we, we react to the crime afterwards. Of uh, that constant reminder, and of course you, you're having, you know, different shift work and stuff like that, where they may not always be seen depending on what shift they're on, but having that constant reminder of me just walking through the hallways of the office whenever I see everybody, just that, you know, hey, how you doing? You know, the bro, the bro hug and all that kind of good stuff. Um, just a, as a continual reminder of, hey, this, this person truly is looking out for me. They're looking out for everybody. They really do care. And to get that um, implemented, you know, you have 28, a little over 2,700 law enforcement agencies in Texas. And a big chunk of those are really, really small agencies, right? So I was at an agency before and was talking about 
peer support and certain other programs. And whenever I told one of the higher ups and not naming the agency, whether it was a PD or an SO, that person was very receptive to it. It was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know about this. Whenever I, I brought up the, and this was uh, over a little over a year ago, um, after the peer support network came out, I was like, hey, that's just another tool that's out there, you know, and that person was very receptive to it, took it to their boss, the, the ultimate CEO of the organization. Well, that person did not have a good response to that. Their words where I don't want other people's trauma dumped onto my officers. Instead of sitting back, maybe sitting back going, okay, let me let me hear the full story about this. And okay, well, maybe it's not set for a good fit for my agency to have a peer team, but I know my officers go through stuff and they could use some peer support. So it was that old school of, oh my gosh, you know, heck no, we're not doing this. That sounds bad kind of thing, which is sad. And when I, when I heard that, I was just kind of, I was kind of shocked for a minute and was just like, okay, well, you know, if you need anything, keep talking to them. Let me know. I can give you additional resources to try to help, uh, give you a better presentation to your boss about it. So. Yeah. I let me, let me a get a, of, a, a question. A lot of agencies are doing a great job of it, but. Yeah. Let me get a question on that. So is it coming where the state of Texas or even the federal government says, all right, um, you don't get an option anymore. You have to have a peer support program in-house. Is that coming? Uh, you know, I, I know that it's mostly, you know, broadly accepted that they're a good thing to have. But this guy, just one guy was able to just deprive all of these officers from a good program uh, with one sentence. And I, I just feel like that should at some level be, uh, there. there isn't a... Uh, a balance there of having someone else say, no, you really, you can't just shoot that down because you think it's a bad idea because everyone else in the entire world thinks it's a good idea except you. And so maybe the problem is you. So what is the, is there a heavy hand coming down eventually of, all right, everyone needs to have one and everyone's getting on board or, or well, not? I'll tell you that. So, and it came out of last legislative session, uh, not the one that just ended, but the two years ago, that every, every law enforcement agency shall, it, it wasn't one of those you may, is you shall create a men mental health leave policy. Well, that, that's already out. Um, and I, I can tell you on that one, I was teaching legislative updates, state and federal law updates at a, at a place. And whenever I got to that section and talked about it and a senior person in the, in the, in the room that had 20 plus years experience and had a, a higher rank, he wasn't the ultimate uh, chief or sheriff, but he was up there very quickly came out and disagreed with that. And I won't tell you what he said. He said, you know, that's BS. Um, and I, I kind of was like, did I, did I just hear what I thought I heard? And I kind of looked over and you could, you could tell, and I had, I don't know, probably 20, 30 people in the room and I kind of like scanning faces. And I was like, okay, who said that? And then I, I could tell who said it. And I was like, could you say that again? And he did. 
I was like, can you tell me why you said that? And I was like, oh, you know, people are going to uh, try to take advantage of that. Da, 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 da. And I go, well, that's why your agency has to create a policy. There's going to be guidelines that have to be followed. There have to be a criteria that has to be met for you to be able to do this. And like, he just instantly, as soon as he heard it, was like, that's, that's BS. Instead of, you know, that's, that's probably a pretty good idea, right? Um, I don't know that, and I don't believe it would be a, a good thing. And don't, don't, don't misunderstand me when I say this. I don't think it'd be a good thing if they came out and said every law enforcement agency in Texas has to have a peer team because, again, if you only have five officers at that agency, um, so you already have a, a peer network in place to a degree throughout the state. The what what they are doing, and matter of fact, I was scanning through it this morning because it just got released. One of the mandatory trainings that is going to take place this next training unit that starts September one. Um, if you remember from the last legislative update, they came out and said that T. Cole was going to put out a uh, 16 hours of mandated training as part of your 40. And they never did. They just gave some recommendations of, here, you should probably take these classes, you probably take these classes. But one that just came out and got released, uh, I was made aware of it this morning, and the title of it is Finding Wellness, Building a Healthier Life. And so it's a four-hour block, and they have the – and it's on Tico's website, and it's it's for review right now uh, for people to look at it, make any comments. And I've just been scanning through it this morning before we got started, and it's kind of the same stuff or a lot of the same stuff from all the trainings that I've had over the last several years with peer support and my chaplain training. Um, I haven't seen anywhere in there that it talks about a peer team, but like I said, I've just been kind of scanning through. It's about 30 pages of draft, um, but that's coming out and that's a four hour class or a minimum of a four hour class. Well, that's good. Um, so I think, and, and this is one of those where every peace officer has to take this. So all the way up to the chief or the sheriff, they're going to have to take this. So I think for right now, it's a, it's a decent start to get it out there. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, as that stuff comes out, you know, to use, uh, which is kind of a poor word, but indoctrinating people into just accepting that this is something that's good for them. Um, you know, when you, when you force a child to eat good foods or, you know, exercise when they want to just sit down and, and be lazy all day, they generally don't appreciate it. Um, you know, unless you have just an angel child, but you're doing what's best for them, even if they disagree, because you know what's best for them and they don't. And I think that there's right. kind of a, an atmosphere of that going on in law enforcement where for so long we've we've done the same thing and we can tell just based on evidence, based on numbers, that it's not really working that well. You know, we've we've done a pretty good job. And I use this argument. I've I've talked about this. You know, if we have and I'll use round numbers to make it easier, but you know, if we have 150 officers commit suicide per year, that means the other, you know, seven hundred thousand didn't. And so that's 
that's better than not. You know, obviously, if we could prevent every one of those 150, we would, and we we would love to. But there are a bunch of officers that are still with us that are suffering, that haven't killed themselves, that are still doing the job, that need help. And they may be doing the job poorly. They may be doing the job with resentment. But we need desperately as a country and as as an industry to lift every officer up to their best, fullest potential, as close as we can get them to it. And you're not going to do that without addressing what's between their ears and what's in their heart. And so I, I really believe that as we get these little four-hour classes or these little legislative slowly updating to include more and more of this, even mandatory shall language, uh, that's slowly moving the tide closer toward where we want to be. But um, is there... Uh, so what I heard a lot in there is, you know, with this four-hour class, that's going to be going to everyone. This is not just for peer support teams, correct? Correct. This every. is for everybody, every peace officer. Okay, yeah. Peace officer. So this was going to be my next question. What What about all the other cops that are not peer support trained or they're not on the team, but they know their buddy needs help? what kind of training or what kinds of things are available to those guys who are like, I'm not on the team, uh, but I do know that something needs to happen with, with so-and-so who's struggling or just went through a shooting. Um, What do those guys do and what can an agency encourage their non-peer support team members to, to do after a crisis? I think probably making everyone aware of the potential signs, symptoms, if you will, of what to look for, not only in somebody else, but also in ourselves. So if you see something like that, then you can start to address that. Even if it, even if somebody's not gone through peer support training or have additional training in that area, to know that they can go up to Gentry and go, hey, Gentry, I noticed that the last day or two, you're, you don't, you don't come into work with that smile on your face that you always have. You kind of seem a little, a little sad about things. You kind of heads down. You're kind of like kicking rocks while you're walking around with your hands in your pockets. Are you good? What's going on? You know? Yeah. Looking just, you have that good chunk of us older and even younger law enforcement go, nah, I'm fine. No big deal. You know, don't worry about it. And the goodness of us go, oh, well, you know, I tried, you know, so I'm going to walk away now instead of not, not being a jerk about it, but being persistent of, hey, Gentry, look, I care about you, brother. Tell me what's up. If I can't help you, somebody can, you know, what is it? You know, is it you just didn't get good sleep last night or has all that stuff come back now and you're really thinking about it a lot? And just, again, I think it goes back to the trust in there and do, does everybody believe that that person actually cares about what's going on to try to help somebody else? So, I mean, it's like, you know, when that incident happened to me two months into my career, there were there sure as heck wasn't anything about peer support back then. It was just, you know, you're doing all right. If you even got that, and it was pretty much, hey, when are you coming back to work? Yeah, do you want to so, tell that story? Yeah, I mean, I can. Uh, and it's so 
I started, so I started my career at Potter County June 25th, 1990, which was, I showed up for muster at 1145 and that was the night of my 20th birthday. So still a young guy. Well, fast forward two months and it was really one week shy of officially being two months. Um, I got attacked um, in one of the bays at the old correction center of Potter County uh, in the admin one in a, what found out to be, it was a escape attempt. And I got attacked. Um, one of the guys in the bay, bay four, there was 18 inmates in there. And about 1.30 in the morning, going through making a head count. Uh, there, there was two of us in that unit. Uh, the other guy I was working with had gone off to another unit to help with some some issue. Uh, so it was time to make another head count. Had to do that. We'd already been through there several times, every 30 minutes. And anyway, get in there, and it's at night, almost 1.30 in the morning. And so very limited if you ever had the opportunity just to see the old correction center out there. So they had their nightlight on, and it was at the very back of Bay 4, so it definitely would not be a well-lit environment. Anyway, I got attacked from behind uh, with come to find out what was a table leg uh, that they had gotten loose off of their table. So about a 30-inch piece of oak uh, with a bolt sticking out of it, and that's what I got hit with. And the first blow uh, came across the back of my neck, uh, the base of my head. And there's a big long, I got, I got, there were indicators that I didn't know uh, about, like whenever I was coming out of Bay 3, I always counted either 1, 2, 3, 4, or 4, 3, 2, 1. As I was coming out of Bay 3, some inmate, as I was coming back to the door to get out, after doing head count, some inmate in there just kind of yells out, hey, be careful tonight, boss. And I mean, I was 20 years old. I hadn't even gone through a jail school yet. I had pretty much zero training at that point. They, they really t taught me the, the very limited uh, things to do in there, none of which was defensive tactics or combative. And anyways, somebody said, hey, be careful tonight, boss. And I gave a presentation, and I even have it in my presentation where I, and I did. I thought when that, when I heard that, I was like, well, that was awfully nice of that guy. To say that to me, you know, and I walked sweet. out, shut the door and with those uh, two big brass keys and locked the door. And then I go right next door to Bay 4. And that's where things were different. Uh, there were 18 inmates in there. There was an extra inmate in there that shouldn't have been in there. But because of overcrowding or whatever, his bed was in a different position. And that was the first person that I looked at. Anyway, he's the one that attacked me. Well, right as I get towards the back of the bay, I'm moving my head right and left counting people all of a sudden very quickly and that's kind of how the the brain works where kind of like everything kind of slows down all of a sudden all at once i hear the sound of running footsteps on this concrete floor and at the same time some other inmate yelled very loudly look out and that's when i got hit and if you've ever, you may have heard people say, well, you know, have you ever got your bell rung? Like to where you actually heard ringing in your head. Well, I got that when I got struck. And when I tell the full story of everything, there's a difference between to this day and we're coming up on 
uh, the 33rd uh, anniversary date, if you will, here in a couple of weeks, that there's a, there's what my brain to this day still remembers, and it's different than what actually happened. And so I got hit, turned around, and was and came around in a fighting position. And I because I remember my fist being up and turning to swing, and I just see the silhouette of a guy, and he's coming at my head with the only thing that I could think of at the time was a baseball bat, because that's what it looked like as he was coming for my head once I turned around. So I blocked that. He, I still get hit. And he rears back to hit again. Well, he, he's standing in my only path to get out of this bay. And that, that bay might as well have been 100 yards long. Um, I'm not, I, I can give you a best guess as to how, how long those bays were. But all I know is I was at the very back and I needed to get out. And, you know, we didn't carry tasers. We obviously didn't have a gun, no OC spray, no uh, taser. You had a pair of handcuffs, a big brick of a radio. And that was pretty much it. And those keys. And so he rode back to hit me again. And I was like, mm, I'd rather you not hit me again. Right. So I take off running uh, across the beds to try to get out of there. And he's following me. And I, I tripped, fell down towards the end, landed on a guy, like hit my head on their little nightstands as I'm trying to turn to get up. My shoulder mic hits my the left side of my neck as I was turning to get up to get out of there and I was that's when things kind of slowed down for a second I was like oh that's my my shoulder my I need to call for help while I was trying to do that and get up off the bed he met me again and struck me again and right on the I had my wallet in my left back pocket so I got hit on the the left cheek back there and that brought you back to the days of going to the principal's office and the uh, <laughs> Yeah, you know, junior high and stuff, and I mean, and I felt that one. I, that one super hurt, or hurt really bad. And he reared back to hit again, and I was like, oh, "Man, I got to get out of here." So I'd like, my brain says, "Hey, man, I got up and I jumped over that last bunk. I kicked that door open, and I, as I was grabbing it, as I stepped out uh, to shut it, here he is again, taking another swing at my head. But luckily, he hit the steel door frame, and I was able to get that door closed. Well, fast forward. Um, I got out and all this guy got 25 years, uh, for that attack. I tried to, I tried to fight it, but the DA's office said, Hey, we're giving him a plea deal. Uh, it wasn't meant for me. It was actually meant for a female, uh, guard on the night, sh on the evening shift. But, um, anyway, after the fact, I was never like, the, I, I didn't get a call from my sheriff, which was the Jimmy Don Boyson back then. I didn't get a call from the sheriff, the chief deputy, the captain. I don't even remember getting a call from the lieutenant. Like, you know, hey, you okay? Nobody came to visit me. Um, my sergeant was off that night, so I had the deputy in charge that night. And when not, I didn't get, hey, thanks for not letting 18 inmates escape. Nothing like that. I mean, it was just, you know, hey, you can take the next night off, and if you're good to come back to work, come on. And so I'm like, all right, I want to go back to work, I guess. I just kind of dealt with that over the years. Um, and I got the, my coworkers were, they throw the jokes out, you know, hey, watch out for the table leg and, you know, things like that. Not, hey, man, you, uh, like you, somebody tried to kill you, you know, are you okay? You know, should we, 
there was no offering of psychological services or anything like that. And so I pretty much tried to just truly, I fit into the stigma of, Hey, I'm just going to try to forget about that. Like it never happened, but you, you can't forget because, um, even though I've had EMDR and I've talked to people, uh, every August 19th around one thirty in the morning, I'm waking up and it doesn't matter where, where I'm at, whether I'm on the road traveling in a hotel or I'm here at home and in bed with my wife, uh, around one I'm going to wake up. And that, it, and I know this and it's, it's how I process it now is completely different. Um, Hey, I got out, I survived. It's just another one of those things. Now I can go right back to bed. But for a really long time, I never really put two and two together because I was just trying to really put it out of my brain. Uh, it was to the point of I, I did not know exactly what day that actually occurred until 2018. And so I'd been asked to give a presentation at a first responders conference for mental health and wellness. And they had heard my story about things and they were like, hey, we want you to be one of the presenters. So I had to go back and do some some homework um, had to get your dad involved. Uh, I texted him or called him. I was like, Hey, you remember that time? He was like, yeah, we all remember. And I go, what, what's the chances y'all could find like records, photographs, anything. And your dad was like, Scott was like, dude, do you know how many computer systems we've gone through since that occurred? And I go, yeah, probably a couple. And so he was like, let me do some checks and I'll get back with you. And so it was like a day or so maybe. And I heard back from him. He was like, hey, this is all that we have at the SO that we can find, uh, which were uh, a couple of pictures, a few pictures, and very limited, very, very limited documentation. So then your dad was like, hey, call the, call the DA's office. So then I called the DA's office. So I was like, sorry, I had to go through the whole spiel because they have no clue who I am. Hey, this is who I am. Used to work there, you know, at Potter, blah, blah, blah. So doesn't, this is all they have. Like y'all have all that other stuff. And this guy's like, Oh man. And I knew the guy and he goes, let me do some checking. Well, at the end I get forwarded to like, I don't remember what his official title is, but he's like the, the keeper of all records for the County of Potter <laughs> who apparently has an office in a basement under some building somewhere. So I call this guy. I was like, Hey, this is who I am. This is what happened. This is what I'm looking for. Da, da, da. And this guy's like, Oh Wow. And, but he didn't just go, well, chances are slim. You know, if I find it someday, I'll call you. It was a, it was like literally like the next day. If I remember right, uh, I get an email from this guy or no, he called me and he goes, Hey, what's your email address? I found some stuff. And that was the first time that I got, that I had ever even been allowed, or I guess, because I, I guess I never really thought about it. I actually got to read the suspect's confession. Uh, on it. And that's when things kind of went a little different for me in my brain, because he talked about that he hit me at least five times. And that the first time he hit me, it knocked me to the ground, uh, which I have no recollection of whatsoever. Cause I mean, I got hit in the base of the head. So I think I got knocked out. And cause he said he hit me again while I was down. Um, and so I have no knowledge of that. And so that that's how things kind of changed. I was like, Oh crap. That was because when I would tell the Academy classes that I used to teach of, Hey, in the August of 1990, cause I couldn't remember the day I would always just say, Hey, I got attacked and this is what happened. Well, once I got all this other information and could go through uh, some EMDR therapy and stuff, 
of, okay, now it was no longer, hey, this is the day I got attacked. This is the, this is the day that somebody tried to kill me. Hmm. And for whatever reason, God said, hey, all right, you've taken enough strikes, so it's time to get up, and you got to figure out how to get out of here. Versus me cowering in a corner and crying and saying, please don't hurt me. And I, I tell it when I say, hey, I was 20 years old, and I was 20 years old cocky, but I wasn't 18 versus one cocky. And as much as I would have loved to have stayed and tried to fight, I'm not sure what I was going to do because he had a big baseball bat club. Um, but I was going to give it something. But then I was like, okay, there's 18 of them and there's one of me. This probably isn't going to turn out well. Yeah. You might want to get out. Right. And not so, good. yeah. And so that just, you know, kind of blossomed into, you know, the cop dreams and the more cop dreams after I got out on the streets a couple years later. And it wasn't really until after that um, that I got to really deal with this stuff. And um, 2014, whenever I uh, went through, it was 2014, 2015, I think it was 2014, um, I went down to PCIS, the Post-Critical Incident Seminar at Lehman here in Huntsville at Sam Houston State University. Um, and that was a God thing. Uh, got selected to go and observe the PCIS down there. They were putting on like their, I believe it was like their second one. And I got, uh, they reached out to uh, TMPA who I work for. I was like, hey, could y'all send a couple of people to observe this PCIS to try to help get the word out to agencies across Texas? And so I got selected. And at first I was like, man, I don't want to do this. I don't even, you know, I read about it. I was like, I don't want to do this, you know, but I'm like the rookie. So I get, you know, selected. <laughs> and it was, uh, I'll tell you, it was a three, three days I'll never forget. Uh, I've met lifelong friends, and that, that's kind of what got me into the direction. And it took a, a little while after that to the direction of peer support. And there's just, you know, I deal with it, and that's probably why I'm hard-headed because I got smacked in the back of the head really hard. But it's just, uh, you know, it's one of those things, and – I was able to get out and, and, and am willing to tell my story. Um, like whenever I give my presentation, it's a, it's a whole event throughout my whole life, starting from law enforcement, personal life, professional life, medical issues and stuff like that. And just lay it out there. And the first time I ever gave the presentation, uh, my wife, and it's for, I was doing this for an organization called, and it's called first responder conferences. And, they said, Hey, you have an hour and 15 minutes to give your, you know, your presentation. I was like, all right. So I told Michelle and we were doing this at a, at a church uh, auditorium. Uh, there was like 150 people that were there, you know, police, fire, EMS, dispatchers, all that. And my wife was there and I said, Hey, I want you to sit up on the front row. And uh, she goes, no, I'm going to sit in the very back. I go, no, you're not. I said, I'm going to need you up on the front row. Cause I might need you. She goes, no, you're not going to try to pull me up on stage, uh, you know, messing with her. And I said, no, I might need you. And I kind of gave her that look and she was, and then she understood what I was saying. And she was, well, how am I going to know? And I go, you'll know, <laughs> you'll, you'll just know. Cause you're my wife. Um, and a couple of times I had to look over at her cause it's an emotional process going through this, especially the first time I ever did it. But that at the end of the day, to me, that's, that's the peer support of, just talk about this stuff. Don't, don't keep it in. You know, if you're struggling with something, tell somebody, you know, and it's okay to, to, 
shed a tear every now and then the the calls for service we've been through all this stuff uh you know us supposed to be you know the big bad police uh but then you know several years ago when all this stuff was happening across the country and then there's all this not really a push but you saw it quite often of different things occurring in these cities and counties and so they're taking pictures of the officers and you know see we do care we are human da 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 but then when we're internal in our organizations we we don't want to talk about stuff and it's okay to just say it you know man i'm hurting right now you know after that call when that call sucked you know doing those debriefs after those really traumatic events so many things that i look back over my career after almost 24 years worth i've been out for nine now and so many things that we we definitely should have had a debrief over uh, to get everybody in there and say, hey, all right, let, let's talk about this. And then maybe identifying any time after that, uh, if somebody needed additional assistance with a counselor, you know, therapist. And just today, you know, like bringing up that, hey, everybody's going to have to take that class. There's going to be some people that get upset about that. Instead of sitting back going, hey, this is for, you know, because there are a lot of people, not all, a lot of people are going to look at a great, it's another mandated class, blah, blah, blah. Instead of going, hey, this looks like something that might either help me or people that I work with, you know, and, and going in with that attitude. Because um, outside of the academy, you haven't had, unless you voluntarily took a course, you haven't had anything about helping, helping be well, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, that's definitely not taught in broader society hardly at all. Um, you know, I can just think, I was trying to think about some of the wellness training I received as a kid, which mostly turns into like little sayings, but you know, one of the things I, I really remember, and I'm going to try to bring this around with your story is I was told, you know, if you can't say something nice, don't say, don't say anything at all, you know, and, um, nice isn't always the end goal. Uh, you, you should say the truth, even if it's not nice. Um, and I just, I really believe because after my, after my shooting 11 days later, um, I stopped a knife murder hand to hand combat. I wasn't able to shoot because of the circumstances, the amount of people in the room. Um, and so I ended up almost shooting the guy, not shooting him, um, fighting him hand to hand for what I thought was maybe 10 minutes. It was probably more like 90 seconds or two minutes, you know, really not that long, but eternity in hand-to-hand combat for your life. This is a methed out apartment. There's screwdrivers and broken glass everywhere already. And, um, so, you know, what really happened was my shooting, my shooting was really cut and dry. It was a dude that was, uh, all on every drug, every drug he could get his hand on. Um, he broke into some guy's RV and pointed a gun at me. Uh, so there was no, should I have shot that guy? There was no question about whether or not I was justified. It was actually very cut and dry and I didn't really struggle with it until 11 days later in this fight, there was all kinds of problems I had with this fight. Uh, there was just, and you know, we can get into it later, but more, there was moral injury abounding in this fight. <laughs> it was everything went wrong that should have went right. And I was just absolutely broken. And 
all the attention was put on my shooting, which was actually very cut. I was actually fine with it. Uh, there was no problems at all. But um, eventually those two memories blended. Uh, so it was raining the night of the fight. It was perfectly clear the night of the shooting. But now in my memory, I can hardly at all imagine that shooting without rain. Uh, it, they just, they're the same memory almost in very many respects. And, um, you know, I, I never was able to tell the truth to some people that I needed to tell the truth to about uh, how, and these are other officers, how their actions were uh, negatively affected me. Um, people who, right. you know, they were, they were sitting at the gas station while I was screaming for my life on the radio, you know, and not coming to help me. And so I was, I was angry and I was uh, injured, you know, morally. I was, this, this was wrong. This shouldn't have happened. Uh, the things that happened, uh, I didn't know were even possible as far as the darkness and the dysfunction I saw. It was out of my realm of possibility. And, um, you know, I really, I never had been taught how to tell that kind of truth. That was just a painful, painful truth. And so when people would ask me, you know, what what's going on, it was always about the shooting. And so what, what you brought up was, uh, you know, identifying critical incidents, saying, what do you say? Do you, you know, how are you doing? Or say nothing. Um, there's a couple levels there to what your whole story, first of all. Uh, I'm curious, were you upset at all that the other inmates didn't try to help you? Or did that make sense to you that they would have stayed behind? I don't, I don't know that I thought that. The way that I looked at it was, of course, and it took a really long time before I ever pieced this together. The the whole picture. Um, the the guy that first said, "Hey, be careful tonight, boss." Like whenever I talk about it, uh, I'm like, "Okay, what did that guy just tell me?" And they're like, "That something's going to happen, right?" Well, I I literally was like, "Man, I appreciate it. that. Was super nice of that guy, right?" once you learn about the world, I mean, I was a city guy that had no aspirations of being a cop. It just happened. And so once I looked at everything, okay, that guy was trying to tell me something. And then if it had not been, the way I look at it is this, had it not been for that one person that screamed, look out, right? Is, is that, I mean, he could have done it a few seconds before that helped. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. So give me at least give me a fighting chance. Yeah. Um, right. But who, and, and to this day, and I, I just thought about it the other day, uh, cause I was teaching a FTO class, um, uh, this last week and I, somewhere in there, I brought it up cause I'm trying to talk to them about, um, how do you teach courage to a new officer? And so this got brought up and so of course they were in trees. So I had to show them a couple of pictures and stuff. And had it not been for that and, maybe, you know, things would have been different. Maybe if, cause I was in the process of turning from the right to my left. So I, my brain says I was, as soon as all that happened and I heard, look out, I was trying to spin faster. And that's when I got hit. Had I not done that, I would have taken it directly in the back of the head yeah. instead of across the base of my neck. Uh, and maybe we're not having this conversation today that I wish I knew who did that. Not the guy that hit me. I know uh, who did that. Yeah. Uh, his name's Neil Everett Otis, but the guy that screamed, look out. Yeah. So that actually, never, him doing that actually helped you cope or a kind of, it was like a, 
a light in that darkness yeah, because, that this person helped me. There was there was someone because, there. And and it was another good reminder last week whenever I was telling the story. Um a guy said whenever I you know, it was like, you know, the guy said, Hey, be careful tonight. And then the guy yelling, Look out. He goes, um, because some and somewhere later in the class we was talking about because we had talked about characteristics of a good FTO and stuff like that. And he brought it up again of you must have been one of those officers that like you at least made an impact on some, otherwise you wouldn't have got those two warnings. Mm, yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I, I was like, you know, you're right. You know, I mean, I wasn't, I mean, I was 20 years old and, um, it was, it was, you know, it was a weird thing, but there, uh, you know, and I still, I mean, I'll think about it every now and then, uh, you know, especially when I do pure stuff or whatever, I'm like, you know, why, why, why weren't things like this back then? You know, why did nobody come and sit down and go, Hey, can you go talk to somebody, you know? Um, and like, there's still cops out there that refuse to admit that they have cop dreams. It's okay to have cop dreams. People have them. It's, it's, it's part of it. You know, it's, you just process through it. And like, I don't, I don't hold ill will towards, you know, anybody after the fact, you know, at the, at the sheriff's office, but you know, it'd been like, you know, somebody, you know, my, my supervisor that was off that night when he came back to work the next night, uh, or after I came to back to work, cause I missed a one night of work. Um, he was really the only one that, um, kind of helped walk me through it. He was a strong Christian man. Um, he come back to my unit and be like, Hey, um, you know, if there's, you know, if you need to talk about this, but nothing outside of, you know, Hey, if we need to get you some psychological counseling or anything. Um, and so I, I held on to that, uh, for a long time, uh, knowing that at least somebody, cause he helped me through the process. He was with me on the phone when I would call the district attorney's office, um, during the, mm, when yeah. they're trying to plead this guy and all this kind of good stuff. But outside of that, you know, ranks above that, there was, there, there was nothing. You know, I mean, somebody tried to kill one of your officers, you know, shouldn't the head of the organization of the committee go, hey, um, Gentry, I understand somebody pointed a gun at you and I'm sorry that happened. You know, I, I'm here for it. if you need to talk. We also have this. Right. Yeah. But so this is all what you're getting into is like the the moral injury of which I think just gets so under served or under attended to, you know, PTSD particularly the the d at the end of that the disorder um is primarily a a fear or fight or flight response uh, you get stress and anxiety but the moral injury is like a guilt or a shame or betrayal it's the themes that came behind the actual traumatic incident so they're they're very synchronous they happen at the same time but um you know the not only was i attacked but also People didn't respond the way they should have. And so I have this traumatic in, uh, injury physically and even just primally. I was in danger. But then also the support systems that I feel like should have been there weren't there. And so that injures you again after the fact. It's just salt in the wound that you know I felt like my, my boss should have called me and said, oh, I heard about this. Are you all right? You know, what, what do you need? Or I feel like, you know, what should have happened is this guy should have got punished worse or et cetera, et cetera. Those are things that just do not get talked about. And I found out, I found out about moral injury probably six months ago. 
And I realized almost everything I dealt with after my incidents were moral injuries. They, they had nothing to do with the danger I was in. I was, you know, surprisingly relatively okay with the amount of danger I got into. But the, the things that happened afterward or the themes inside those events bothered me to my core. I mean, just unbelievable. <clears throat> after my shooting, and I'm, when I say after, I mean like bang, 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 and then I'm still standing there. Uh, you know, we move away from this area. They set up a big command center, and uh, I I run back slowly through the lines of defense. So, you know, people show up, and they have guns, and uh, I go to the first person I see, and I'm like, hey, what do you need to know? Because I'm the only guy who's seen this guy. I'm the only person who knows what kind of gun he has. I'm the only person who knows that he was holding a beer can in his hand. And so I'm the, I'm the source of info right now. And this is a SWAT call out at this point because I shot him, and he didn't die. He's still alive inside an RV. And they're like, oh, no, we don't need anything. I was like, okay, cool. So I go back to the next line. What do you need to know? Uh, nothing. Well, what I didn't know was no one knew I had shot this guy. Um, no one knew that I had fired my weapon. No one knew that I was the one who called it out on the radio. So they all thought when I said shots fired, they thought that he was just shooting a gun inside this RV haphazardly. They didn't know this was oh, okay. a shooting. And so I'm like, I know that I'm, I have to go talk to some higher ups. They're probably going to take my gun. I know that there's a whole process. So I didn't know what the process was, but I knew it was coming. So I was trying to like, Hey, what do you guys need? You know, do you need me to give you my gun and count my bullets or tell you the things that happened so you can make the right calls? But everyone was just dismissing me because I was the new guy. I was super new. I was only six months on my own in the shooting. So they're like, no, we don't need anything from you. I'm like, okay. So on to my, my supervisor. Hey, Sarge, what do you need? Uh, nothing. We're good. Okay. I, I just thought they already knew all the information they needed, and but but really wow. they had no clue. And so I run all the way back to the command center, which is where all the big bosses are, who have you know wiped the cobwebs from their eyes and come out to the field to see this this debacle, and walk up to my lieutenant and say, "All right, LT, I'm ready to to talk about this. And what do you need?" And I've got my body armor on, you know, my heavy armor. And uh, he's like, oh, you know what? The news just showed up and they are, they're kind of in the crossfire. So they're in, they're in danger. You need to go tell them to move because everyone's setting up and the news is like downrange. And so you need to get down there oh, wow. and tell them to get out of here. And I'm like, all right. So, cause we we're across the street from a truck stop. So they just, the news just parked at the truck stop, but all the, all the civilians and everything are are downrange at this truck stop. So we're going to have to evacuate this. So he tells me that's priority number one. I'm thinking in my head, he's just thinking of the civilians. You know, I, of course I need to debrief and all that, but he is trying to keep other people from getting hurt. So I thought, fair enough, I can do that. <clears throat> and so I run, this is probably a quarter mile. I mean, I ran from, from I-40 to the Petro, uh, well, not not quite a quarter mile, but well, 400 meters, that's about a quarter mile. So, because I measured it after, because I'm running. I ran from the shooting to the command center, back from the command center to the Petro <laughs> truck stop, and back. <clears throat> and so I had run 800 meters in full kit right after a shooting. And so I'm like, I get the new. I tell the news, you guys are downrange, you have to move. And they're like, okay. And they start like slowly unplugging things and setting them in bags. So I, me and there was another officer with me. 
grabbed all their gear, just took off running with it. And like, you better come catch us because you're going to get shot if you don't. So (laughs) we just grabbed their cameras and tripods and bags and we just hiked with it. And they were not happy, you know, probably hundred thousand dollars and crazy cameras and stuff, but they leave. So that project is done back to the command center so I can debrief. So I run back uh, and he says, uh, no one is guarding the entrance to this RV park where you just shot this guy. And in the meantime, this guy had set a cushion from the RV on the stove and turned it on. So he just sends this RV up in 30, 40 foot flames. I mean, massive ball of fire. And so big hazard, obviously. So he's like, you need to go guard the entrance. And I'm like, okay, I really feel like there's enough cops here that you could find someone else to do that. But yes, sir. So this time, do they, do they, 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 they still they have no clue. They know that you were the one that fired the shots. Yeah, right. And I'm like walking straight up to them face to face like, I'm ready to debrief. And they're like, no, go back. <laughs> so I was like, all right, whatever. So I head back to the entrance of this, which is just a driveway, you know, and we have units parked there. So now I'm standing there with my hands on my shoulders, you know, my shoulder straps, just standing there pulling security for this scene. And uh, <clears throat> I said this SWAT guy pulls up and he's, he's gearing up and I'm start talking to him and he's basically telling me, shut up, dude, why are you trying to bother me while I'm setting up? And I said, I shot this guy <laughs> I yelled at him. I was like, I shot this guy and I know what kind of gun he has. And he goes, Oh, okay. Well, what's going on? So I start telling this SWAT guy Intel, he's the SWAT sniper. And as soon as he realizes that I'm a point of information, he's, he's accepting of that. He's like, okay, well tell me what's up. So he gears up and he goes out to the scene. So I'm, again, standing there with flashing blue lights blinking off my face, just twiddling my thumbs at this entrance, pulling security like, I really feel like something else should be happening right now. And over the radio, you know, the the private channel, the lieutenant comes on and goes, uh, you know, uh, he's at 322 Officer Giles, which wasn't my call sign. He should have said 333, but I said, go ahead. He's like, I think I need to talk to you. And I was like, 10-4? Like, you think, dude? What do you think we're all here for? <laughs> like, where do you think this whole scene just came out of nothing? So uh, so I go back another 400 meters to this spot, and I am exhausted. I'm drenched in sweat. My legs, I'm running through a bar ditch. This is an open field, so there's no, there's no sidewalk. So I'm just tripping over root balls. And uh, so I finally get back to him, and I'm like, what? What else could he want from me? And he's like, did you shoot your gun? And I was like, yeah, I said shots fired. What do you think that meant? You know, and he's like, oh, yeah, we have to like do all this stuff. I was like, I, I thought so. I kept trying to come tell you. So they um, they gather this little crowd around me of different people that need to know what I have to say. And they say, just talk to this guy. He's the PIO, public information officer. And this guy, he's going to make a public release because now we have a 60 foot tall fire. We have fire trucks were evacuating places. So the news wants to know what do we need to say to the public? So they're like, tell this PIO exactly what happened. And he's going to do the public release. Everyone else will just listen as you do that. So, so, all right, I start talking. I give a very brief thing because I'm in my head. I'm like, I'm waiting for my attorney before I start saying crazy stuff, but they just need to know the basics. So man pointed a gun at me. So I shot at him. I think I hit him. I don't know for sure. And, and that's it. That's really all I know that there's really not a whole lot to it. Very cut and dry. He didn't shoot at me. 
Uh, he just pointed the gun and I fired and then he disappeared from inside this RV. Uh, I was outside the RV. And so he vanishes inside and starts falling around. And I had hit him in the, it was kind of like between the chest and the stomach and it really just grazed him. So not even a, a real good shot, but uh, it was pitch black middle of the night in an RV park at about 10 yards away uh, for a split second. And he pointed this gun at me. So um, I'm telling them this, they say, all right, you can hide in this little camper. We're going to get an attorney out. I was with cleat. So I know you're TMPA, but uh, that's what we had. So, um, my cleat attorney shows up and does his thing. Well, the next night, so I go back to the PD to type my report. The next day I see this public release pop up. Someone texts it to me and line for line, detail for detail, completely wrong. I mean, like not even close to what happened. This guy, you know, the, the beginning of the call was wrong. He, he shoots at the officers. So the officers return fire and I'm like, if this comes up in court, I, I'm done. I, they're going to think I don't know what I'm talking about. They're going to have this two conflicting stories. Um, but the guy passed away from the fire. And so dead men tell no tells. So that never actually came up. But I was like, you know, if I was really on the hook for something legally or in a trial with this guy, that would have been a nightmare because these details were wrong. So that was uh, just, it was a, like, felt like a violation, uh, but it was it was probably just incompetence. It wasn't necessarily like they just wanted to get the details wrong, but I thought, man, if they got that detail wrong, what else might they do that wouldn't really help me out? You know, really frustrating. And I won't get into the fight, but 11 days later, it was like that times a thousand with all the things that went wrong. And, um, you know, there were, there apparently was a peer support program available but everyone came up to me and said, you know, how was that shooting? Are you okay? But really that fight after tore me up. It was way worse. Right. It was so, it was ugly, bloody, uh, nasty fight. Everything went wrong. Uh, the victim came in back into the room, bleeding from everywhere, and started kissing the suspect as we were standing him up in handcuffs and saying, call me from jail. I love you still, you know. And so I'm like, why did I even save your life if you don't even care, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it was, and no one ever thought we should ask Gentry about that fight. Um, and so it was, I was like, man, everyone's asking me about the shooting, but really we need to talk about this fight cause that's, what's bothering me. So they, uh, so, and I knew that. So I told my Sergeant, I had an, I had an out of body experience in the parking lot walking into the PD and it was, um, it was horrifying. So I walk up to my Sergeant and I'm like, something's going wrong. Something's wrong. I feel crazy. I feel like a lunatic and I, I need to talk to somebody. And he's like, okay. So I end up sitting in front of a counselor, um, sitting in front of psychologists, or maybe that was a psychiatrist. Uh, and they just seemed like they had no idea what they were doing. Like they had never talked to a cop cop before. Uh, you know, I sit in front of this counselor and tell them a story and they were getting traumatized by my story. I was like, I don't think you should really be doing this because you're more traumatized by the story than I am. And uh, I'm over here consoling you about <laughs> what's going on uh, just so we can get this counseling session over. And so there was just moral injury after moral injury after moral injury throughout that process. And the trauma itself, the danger itself, never really bothered me. It was the 
uh, breakdown of the systems in the department I was in. It had nothing to do with the world is a bad place or these people are, you know, violent or I almost died. Uh, it was my agency couldn't care less about me. And in fact, may even do some damage to me if, in their incompetence. And so it was really scary. And that, um, you know, you were describing in yours that there was, uh, it was more about, oh, these guys helped me or it was my, no one reached out to me. And while you were scared from the trauma, the actual baggage that came with the lack of support or the lack of attention after that really, really sank that knife down deeper. And so, yeah, I think peer support programs, um, when, when you help a agency look at their peer support program or you are training people and a critical incident, well, first of all, how do you define a critical incident? Because the main hangup with mine was the shooting was defined as a critical incident. So everyone was trying to help me with that, but the fight wasn't. And by any definition, that fight was way worse. And, uh, how do you define that? How do you tell people to look out for critical incidents and, you know, pay attention to their officers and say, that was bad. <laughs> How are you doing with that? Uh, because otherwise it's just, we wait until someone, you know, sees a dead infant or shoots somebody and then they need help. But how, how do you let an officer know that anything really could be critical for them? Yeah. Like, like you just said, really anything, it just totally depends on the the person and you know, like maybe if an officer went through like the fight, like you've described and everything went, you know, it's the, it's the fight of the century in their, in their mind. And this is how brutal it was. And here's how long it lasted. And it, at the end, they're like, you know, uh, you know, it was, it was cool. And we, you know, uh, get with our, our shift mates and stuff. It's like, Oh man, that was badass and all that kind of good stuff. And then years down the road, after you've had so many more of these fights, and then all of a sudden one day you or one night you wake up and it's like, okay, I hadn't thought about that incident in, you know, seven years, 10 years, 15 years. And all of a sudden it's there. Well, that was a critical incident. And then everything upon that, you know, all that accumulation after the fact, and it's, it's, we're, you know, yeah, the standard critical incident is the, the shooting, the, uh, potential, you know, really, uh, the use of force and all of a sudden somebody's hurt either the officer and or the the suspect car crash goes, uh, you know, police chase and they crash and they die, the, the baby deaths. And, but that critical incident could be that investigator that is having to work this backlog of child pornography cases and they're getting exposed to that because they're having to view certain things for this case that that in and of itself is a critical incident for them because, man, especially maybe a new detective, they've never been there, done that before. And that literally anything that I believe could affect the mind, the body, the spirit of an officer uh, whether police officer, corrections officer, even the the dispatch and telecommunicators, right? There's I've, I've heard so often that the and never really put it together until 
you know, a long time ago where dispatcher came out and was like, Hey, you know, we're, we get all the calls. We're listening to the screaming, the crying and all that on the phone. And then we send y'all and then y'all go 23 and anything else on the radio after that, they still don't know about. And after the fact we're, we're done, we get to take the bad guy to jail, go back in service and everything like that. Meanwhile, the dispatcher had no closure on what happened. And every now and then I'd have a dispatcher, you know, be like, Hey, what happened? You know, this is what we had, you know, don't, don't leave us hanging. Let that dispatcher know about it as well. That's a critical incident for them as well. Um, you know, having to give somebody directions for CPR on the phone while somebody's, you know, panicked and, and stressing, trying to save somebody's life. I mean, that, that in and of itself is a critical incident for that person. And, I think it's just, it would be hard to, for me to define exactly what a critical incident is because everybody's going to have their own viewpoint on it. Uh, like like you, and I, I know some other officers that have been involved in a shooting and they they swear that the shooting itself, they've never had an issue with. It's everything after the shooting that uh, comes back to them. Yeah. And like when I went to that PCIS in 2014, there was a guy that uh, had been in a shooting like, I was like 16, 18 years prior. And he brought his spouse to this PCIS because you can do that. Uh, he talked about things that he had never told his wife. She had never heard this. She had never heard some of the details of this. Um, and then, which meant he didn't talk about it very often, right? especially to his wife. And so once he started doing that, he realized, okay, I, I probably do need to talk to somebody. Hmm about this stuff. So sometimes I don't think it's as, as cut and dry, you know, for some people, other people's, you know, they can say they, they got in a fight with a bad guy and they got hit in the mouth trying to arrest them. Um, and that in and of itself could be a, a critical incident for them. Yeah, for sure. I, I have this story, this, um, these two incidents just for this example. So when I was an FTO, there was a homicide a young lady. I think she was 19, maybe 20 uh, was killed with a knife in her apartment. And it was a, it was a fight. So it was domestic violence. It started in the bedroom. Boyfriend gets a knife, starts attacking and they brawled. I mean, for the entire house, they went from the, this was an apartment. They went from the bedroom to the living room, through the kitchen, back to the living room, which is where she expired. And so um, the whole apartment looked like, a horror movie. It was just, it was a crime scene, you know, it was a giant crime scene, very gruesome. And, uh, you know, you would think, uh, the, the tragedy of this young lady of the nature of the crime, the amount of violence and the scene, you would think that would bother me. And it never did. It didn't even phase me. And I kind of thought maybe I'm a lunatic, like <laughs> this should bother me. This is bad. And, uh, it never, I never lost an ounce of sleep over it. And then a couple months later, I took a call of a runaway, which turned out the girl was just walking down the street from her house. So I pulled up and there she is on the, on the sidewalk, broad daylight, it's 3 PM. I pull over and I say, Hey young lady, she's 12 ish. You know, what's going on? And she says, Oh, uh, it's kind of a long story, but this, one of my mom's old boyfriends had raped me and, uh, through this, pro, you know, when I was very young and now she's back with him. Uh, and I was like, oh my gosh. So of course she ran away. She's pissed off at her mother and her mom was the one who called. And so mom pulls up in a car 
and gets out and I'm already, I'm already pissed off. And so I start yelling at her and she's looking at me real smug and the little girl kind of grabs my arm from behind me and she goes, Hey, uh, my mom's deaf and she can't read lips. So she has no idea what you're saying to her. Cause I'm trying to chew this lady out for, you know, being a, for all the things I wanted to say for getting back with right. this man. And so now all the wind is out of my sails. This lady's deaf and she has no idea what I'm saying. Um, she writes on notes to communicate. People write back to her to read. And I'm like, oh, I can't write what I need to say to this lady, you know? And uh, it just, that bothered me for months. Just this, just the knowing that this girl was in this situation absolutely ate at me constantly. And it wasn't a critical incident. I didn't see anything. Uh, that She didn't even really detail to me any anything about the circumstances, all I just, I knew that this girl felt like she was in danger and she had been violated and she was upset. And that bothered me up and down the street every day. And I probably should have talked to somebody about it because I was just eaten alive by that circumstance. So this murder a month before didn't even touch me. And then just knowing about a crime, just the knowledge of it, and the circumstances bothered me, traumatized me. I was wrecked over this girl. I spent some time talking with her. So I, th- I think, you know, the connection I had with her had more to do with it. Obviously, I know about, I had known about crimes like that, circumstances like that before, but it was something to do with this, the way this little girl related to me and connected to the officer. There were other officers there. Um, and then her mom being deaf, not being able to say what I felt like needed to be said. Uh, and so, yeah, anything, anything could be a critical incident. You have no idea what's going to bother one guy or another. Uh, you know, it could be, it could be that gruesome murder, or it could just be knowing about something that had happened. Um, and so, yeah, with peer support, I think what I'm trying to get at is you have to talk about this stuff before those things show up. You have to tell your peer support team and your officers, you guys have no idea what's going to bother you, but when it does, you'll know. And that's that's all right. It doesn't have to be a shooting. It could be anything. Yeah, and it, it like like you just talked about that that um, incident that you referred to, where I mean, it could just be those just constantly over and over and over again responding to those calls at those houses, those apartments, the trailer parks, all that kind of good stuff. Of uh, you know, l- truly seeing the the worst, you know, in living conditions and seeing the children, and that in and of itself. I mean, we've, I mean, you know, one of those been there, done that. As soon as you thought that you had just stepped into the nastiest thing on this earth, you got the next call and you figured out that wasn't the case. And seeing children exposed to, to this stuff, I mean, that, that has an effect, you know, after a while of, cause you get to go back in service, get back in your climate control car and go eat whenever you want and uh, all that. And, um, you know, there was, there was a time a year, uh, it was back when I was at Canyon PD, I had an FTO or I had a trainee in FTO and we got sent on like a welfare check call. And it was like over at the government housing, uh, places and, the this girl's parents had called, they lived out of state and they were like, Hey, we can't get a hold of our daughter. She's not, you know, it's been several days. We just can't get a hold of her. She's been in an abusive relationship. She got a couple of small kids. So she's, they're concerned about, and she was young. She was, you know, like. 22 years old or something like that, had two kids. And, you know, we're concerned for our daughter, for our grandchildren, da, da, da. So we go do the welfare check and, 
when we knock on the door and finally the door opens and she opened it like just barely two inches, just enough to kind of get her eyeball through that opening. If you can get a, a grasp of that. And as soon as that occurred, this stench came out of that house. And I was like, Oh my gosh. Well, then you look down and all of a sudden notice this little, this little boy, he was like maybe three years old sticking his little eye up there in the crack of the door to see out. And once we know for sure there's kids in there, we're like, Hey, you need to open the door and step out. And she, she was very, and she had been abused uh, in her life by, by men. And so she wouldn't look you in the eye. And I had a female trainee with me and I said, get the door open now and get the kids out and had to make that, you know, command decision. We, we need to check the welfare now get them out. We go through and it was the nastiest thing. It was gross. Um, and uh, a trainee made the mistake of going and opened the refrigerator. I was like, no, don't do that. And of course, when she did that, then this even bigger stench comes out. And during the CPS investigation and stuff, they're, they're going to take the kids and they tell the, the, the mom, um, you're going to have to get all this cleaned up or you're not getting your, you know, or we can't bring your kids back. And it, it's a big, long, drawn-out story, but the it affected me so much to see this this poor little child, really she was, uh, with these two little bitty kids living in these conditions. And the state basically just said, you figure this out with no money and no other resources because your parents live like in New Mexico or something, and you have nobody to help you. But as soon as you get all this cleaned up and fixed, we'll bring you your kids back. Uh, and I was like, wow, that, that sucks for this person. And I volunteered. Uh, I talked to uh, my spouse at the time. Uh, hey, here, here's what's going on. And this was like on a Friday, Friday, late Friday night. And I said, hey, tomorrow um, I want to come and help this person clean her apartment so she can get her kids back. I mean, if you had seen the little kids, you would have, you would have understood. And um, she, so she came to help my trainee volunteered. She goes, I'll, I'll, I'll be more than happy to come and help with this. And I was like, you got to understand you, you don't get paid for this. There's no compensation. She goes, I don't care. I'm here. And we did that next day. We spent a full day laundry, cleaning out, you know, cleaning carpet. I mean, just, it was just one of those things. And that's a lot of, a lot of what most cops just go through, right? Of just seeing that stuff. And then, you know, and just going to those car crashes, you know, things like that and seeing those dead mangled bodies. There's a there's a place in uh, outside of Canyon and it's like you're on your way to Paladura Canyon. There's a four-way stop sign. Uh, I was traveling back up to the Panhandle several years ago to go teach and my GPS took me this route I hadn't taken before for some reason. I was like, all right, well, it says it's faster, so I'll do this. So I get off I-27 and I take uh, what's 4th Avenue coming out of Canyon all the way till like you're heading to Calder Canyon. There's a four-way stop sign. And as soon as I got there, I mean, it's like three o'clock in the afternoon. I look right. Nobody's coming. I look left. And as soon as I looked to the left and I saw the stop sign over there, all of a sudden reality hit. And I, I had that experience of, okay, I haven't been to this intersection in several years. And the last time I was there was a major fatality crash. And it literally sent the feeling through my body of, oh my gosh, uh, cause it came right back because I was the first responding officer. The guy rear ended a, a 18 wheeler 
going probably dang near 100 miles an hour. And he was compressed up against the steering wheel, the dash. And he was, for all intents and purposes, he was dead, but he was still making sounds. And I was the first one there. And as soon as I looked over at that stop sign, I immediately heard in my head the gurgling of that guy, the sounds that he was making. And I shook and I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get out of here. And it was the weirdest thing. Hadn't been to that intersection in years. And hadn't. And I, I can tell you, I'd never thought about that crash after the fact until that time. That's that's the weird thing that some people may not understand. Hey, there, you may think you're good and you may even retire and still think you're good. But all of a sudden, one day it comes back, you know, and you just be humble enough to go talk to somebody. Go, hey, man, do you remember this? <laughs> you know, I'm kind of messed up right now. I need some help. Yeah. And that that kind of recollection or going back to maybe an apartment complex or, you know, a certain block of a neighborhood if you are, you're a police officer, people are relying on you to do your job and you've, you've had a critical incident at that apartment complex and someone else calls you back and you show up and you're in the middle of, uh, you know, recollecting some horrible incident, but you're trying to talk to someone else who lives in a different apartment, you are not going to serve them like you should. You know, you are going to be swamped with this overwhelming feeling of, uh, you know, maybe it's fear or anxiety or even fight or flight. You might even be angry. And so if you're, cause you know, you were alone at that intersection when you remembered that and felt that, but it could easily be, Oh, I just, I was here last week and this pisses me off and this, um, you know, or this certain gas station and you you're now talking to a different citizen and you're going through that, but they're looking to you as a cop. You, you have to do your job. And yet you're trying to bear this burden and process this live, you know, on scene. And you could, you could definitely disserve those people, these things. And you you could have never known that that was going to bother you until it did. And being able to address that and deal with that and process through it so that next time you can, you can recognize it a little better is is part of our job. I mean, it, it is not optional. If you want to serve the public, if you have this idea that you're going to uphold the oath you took, that you're going to carry a gun and a badge, you have to serve these people to the best of your ability. You don't get to do it uh, to the best of your traumatic, uh, you know, incidents, fight or flight response. You have to do it while coping. And if you're not dealing with those things, then you're not serving the public. And so by by serving yourself. Yeah, go ahead. And there was... um like the, I think, and there were, it, when you look back on things now, there was um, a, a time when I had a coworker that, like, he was truly empathetic and, like, he got it. And in essence, at the time, obviously, hadn't even known or heard about the word, you know, the phrase peer support before. Uh, I'd gone to a, a call involving a child, an infant, just a few months old. Um, and the, and, and I remember the morning the call went out, it was first thing in the morning and I was the first one to get there cause I was closer and you know, the child's, you know, unconscious, unresponsive call and you get there and the, uh, the father was holding the baby in their, in his arms and 
uh, I, I looked at the child and the child was blue. And my oldest daughter um, at the time was, I don't, I don't even know if she was one yet, officially one yet, or she might have been one. But all I saw was my child in that guy's arms. And he was just standing there, not doing anything. But then I lo also looked at it of, okay, that child looks like the, the child's dead. But I couldn't sit there and go and appease myself and go, well, okay, this is just a bad deal. I grabbed the baby out of his arm straight down to the floor, CPR on this baby. Because I knew the grandmother of this child. I knew the mother of this child. And I was going to do everything in my power. And, and every breath that I gave that child, in when I'm trying to catch another breath for me to, to give it to the baby, and I wish we would have had body cams back then because I, I, I would have loved to have heard this part because every time I did it, I just said, Jesus. And I was like, please don't let this baby die. And it seemed like forever for the paramedics to get there in the fire. And they finally got there. They come in. They take over. They, they just grab the baby and just haul butt out of this trailer house, put the baby in the ambulance for a few minutes, and then they take off. And I'm just, like, stunned. Like, I'm just there like, what just happened? And I remember I hadn't even, like, the call came out so quick. I didn't have my morning coffee. I didn't have a bottle of water yet in my car. And all of a sudden, the, the paramedic left, paramedics left. And all of a sudden, I had this weird taste in my mouth. And I didn't have anything to drink. Well, I wasn't going to go back in that person's house, go, hey, can I have a glass of water? Right. Um, I ran over to the fire truck. I was like, hey, do y'all have a bottle of water or something? And like they're scourging the inside of their truck. And they're like, dude, somehow somebody didn't restock. We don't have any water in here. I'm like, you guys are, oh my gosh. I'm like, how do you have a bottle of water? You're the water guys. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, you're the water guys. <laughs> and finally, one of them, they said, hey, we have a bag of IV solution, of saline solution. Oh, and I go, I just need something to wash my mouth. That way. Like I was oh. in a... I was having a mental crisis right then. Like I had this taste in Ugh. my mouth and I wanted it gone because I've given CPR to this child. Uh, so they finally give me that uh, bag of saline solution. I just gargle with it and spit it out, you know, numerous times uh, before I can go get something and go straight back to the police department. And on the way, I'm just like, oh my gosh. And by the time, like, Maybe 20 minutes later, reality kicked in for me. And like all of a sudden, I get this massive headache. Uh, my body feels weird. Um, I I called. I remember calling my wife. She's my ex-wife now. But um, I remember calling her um, and telling her what happened. And I, 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 I don't remember exactly what I said other than this baby died. And I tried to save it. Um, somewhere after the conversation, she apparently called my dad. And a little bit later, my dad calls me. Like, I don't know where my dad's never called me while I was at work. And uh, and just was checking on me. He goes, well, you know, she she called and your wife called. And uh, I, th I thought I should. And he talked. We, we probably talked for a good 15, 20 minutes. Um, he just kind of walked me through it. 
And I was like, all right, well then not five minutes after that, this other officer, um, and his, and if he ever gets to hear this, um, I'll, I'll go ahead and say his name. His name's Cody Jones. Um, Cody was the high school officer, the officer at the high school at Canyon. And he had stopped up at the PD and I'd stepped out. I'd, I think I had to go out to my patrol car for something. And he was out there and he started talking to me and I told him about what happened. And I think he could, I guess he could see it in my face by the words I was saying. He followed me back in to my office. So I was a sergeant, uh, into the sergeant's office, closed the door. And he spent probably a good 30, 45 minutes with me. Um, and looking back on it now, he was doing peer support for me. Um, cause I was like out of nowhere, I was a train wreck. And cause I, you know, I'd seen a plethora of dead bodies before, but that was the, and I'd seen dead babies before, but I had never actually tried to perform CPR mouth to mouth on a, on a baby. Um, but he, in essence, he was doing peer support. He was, I don't, and I, I don't, I went and I wish I did, um, remember everything that he told me, but. Um, he le he left it with, you need anything at all, you know exactly where I am and I'll, I'll talk to you and I'll, I'll always remember that. But it's the weird things, right? Yeah. You never know. And obviously those, to me, those are the ones that are predictable. Like if you have to attempt to rescue a child, we, that should bother you. Everyone should expect that. And yet you know, there's this total unrelated officer that ends up doing peer support with you kind of, uh, you know, haphazardly or, or off the cuff. And that's, that's a rather predictable critical incident. That's something you definitely need help after. And, you know, we, in that circumstance, it really wasn't there until just the right people landed in your lap. And so yeah. you know, if, if you're, if you're not, having an organized peer support system that when someone is going through something like that, that it isn't Johnny on the spot, you know, we have got your back. What do you need? Then, you know, you could be ruining someone's life by an act of omission, you know, not doing something, not having a sophisticated peer support team that is well-trained and ready. Uh, you're, you know, that could be a cardinal sin and it may not be long until the state says it's you're at fault for some of the stuff they go through. If you're not doing peer support, if you're not doing some kind of uh, system, then you're going to get in trouble. And there's a good reason. And that's because, you know, Brian, if you hadn't had that support, then, you know, the next day at work, you're carrying that with you to all those civilians and you get into something that requires your best efforts, your best attentions, your best response times, and you can't do it and you fail somebody, then that critical incident, the failure to follow through and help with that was the cause. And, and we can't serve the public like we ought to if we're behind that curve. And so, yeah. And then, and having, you know, as many resources like you're trying to do, which is fantastic, trying to get as many resources as possible, uh, to, you know, Texas Panhandle agencies um, for for that when, when it happens, because it is going to happen when it happens, right, to, to be able to effectively deal and, and treat everybody, um, to have the competent uh, 
culturally, how it's referred to, culturally competent uh, therapists, counselors, like like you talked about, you're you're basically putting that person into shock by talking about what you what you went through because they have no clue, right? Because they don't deal with first responders. Um, having all that in place to to have that resource readily available to everybody, no matter where they're at, and when you know you have your like for cities like you have the EAP, well, a lot of places have talked about, and I know this from personal experience, they don't, the EAP was worthless. And some those, places you talk to now, they're, they're like, oh, ours is actually pretty good. Those Where counselors majority- that I went to were the EAP uh, set up. So I Cause told- like when, when I was going through, when I was uh, about to be going through my divorce, uh, after seven years of marriage, uh, it, it hit me hard. And I was like, I was not in a good mental state. And I mean, I'm not, a, I've never been an alcoholic. I mean, as a young guy, I probably drank a few too many beers, but I'm not an alcoholic. Um, no drugs, didn't cheat on the spouse, anything like that. And all of a sudden, out of, in my mind, out of nowhere, this just occurs. And I was psychologically messed up. Like I, I wasn't sleep. I didn't sleep for like four days, like legit no sleep for four days. Uh, and all of a sudden one day at work, I woke up literally driving. And I was, I, I remember being on this side of the city and next thing I know I was on this side of the city and I have no clue how I got there. Not a clue. I don't know if I stopped at light stops. I don't know. Oh, it freaked I, me out. I've it done that. Me out and I drove, I drove straight to the, to the uh, office went into my lieutenant and walked in, slammed his door and said, I got to go because this just happened. And he was the one that said, Hey, contact EAP. So, and so here's the, the, the funny yet sad part of this. So I I called the number for EAP for the city and I'm put on hold forever. Then I finally get somebody and I go, Hey, here's what I'm going through. I really need to talk to somebody. I've already reached out to my pastor at church, but now I wanted this. Um, and here's what I'm told. Um, well, I'm kind of busy, so it'll probably be about four weeks. Oh my goodness! Before I can, before, before I can get you in, and I would just I'll tell you, I was in such a bad place, and I've openly told that, and I tell this in my um, presentation that I've given. Um, the words out of my mouth were, "Well, I guess if I'm still alive in four weeks, I'll call you back." <laughs> and I just hung up the phone and and was like. Okay, I've I just reached out for help. Yeah. And I've been told all back in four weeks. Get in line. Uh, you know? Yeah. And so and and we you don't want that. You you want even if the agency itself doesn't have a peer team or the resources available in that area, that we know somebody that they can call and get in touch with to get that person help. Yeah. You know. Um I found when I called the number on our EAP the girl that answered the phone was like supposed to onboard me to find out what type of services I needed. So she asked me a bunch of questions that girl, I told her on the phone, I said, I know you probably can't tell me, but where, where are y'all? Like, where is your office? And she was like, we're in Austin, Texas. And I was like, I wish we could be friends. She was so helpful and so careful and said some really encouraging things was very like uh, that was more therapeutic just talking to the onboarding girl than actually talking to the counselor 
And I don't know if it was just natural uh, personality for her, but her training, whatever it was, was all-star. And then I get to this counselor and like the counselor had her dog in the office. It was like this little, and it was not a therapy dog. This was just a pet, had no business being there, smacking his lips, like itching his collar. And I was like, are you going to, is this dog going to stay here this whole time while I'm trying to do it? So it was, it was frustrating. And so, but yeah, the, the, uh, I guess you had it. The The first person you talked to was, was troublesome with your EAP and mine was kind of opposite. The first person I talked to gave me really high hopes. I thought, wow, this is going to be amazing. These people are awesome. They know what they're talking about. They're helpful. They're encouraging. And then, uh, you know, I got let down on the other end, but, uh, yeah, it can be disappointing whenever the people that are supposed to help you don't and really, really fail you. And that's a, that's a huge injury. That's, I'm sorry that happened, but also, sadly, apparently, it's it's not uncommon, you know, when you call an EAP or something, and they're just yeah. not that helpful. Yeah, and um, and you, and but then there's those that have said, you know, oh man, ours is good, you know, which is great. This just doesn't seem to be. If they're if they're out there, a lot of people aren't talking about it. But you you hear more kind of like everything else in the world. You hear more of the negative than you do the positive. Yeah, um, that's a survivor but, bias. You know, have you heard of that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, you hear uh, you know when the planes come back with bullet holes in them, you need to armor all the spots where there's no bullet holes, because the planes that didn't come back had all the bullet holes in the spots where you're not seeing them, and so right. you know you don't hear the stories of the ones who. Uh, it worked, you know, you just, all you really pay attention to is, is the negative. So, you know, they're, they probably are working for quite a few people, but you don't hear those stories because they worked. <laughs> there is no story to tell really after that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, and with all the, the stuff on the peer support, um, cause I'm, I'm pretty sure I didn't mention it earlier. Um, having the resources for the peer team as well, of cause uh, and I might have touched on it to a degree of of getting support for them, uh, especially if they're having to do it quite often. And it may be after a big major event, and they really had to put 100% heart, mind, and soul into into the peer uh, stuff to to make sure that they're okay. Like at uh, the last two years, I've I've been privileged to go to National Police Week in Washington and help with nothing but peer support. And I've been to D.C. before for the uh, National Memorial stuff. And then that was back in 2019. Then the last two years went just for to help with peer support. And that's a whole new aspect because you're not there to go walk around and see the site. You're there to help. And it, it's and at the end, and they've done it before and they did these the two that I've been at um, on the last day after everything's said and done for all the peers. You have a mandatory meeting that they would love for you to be at, and you come in and have this big round table, if you will, because they want to make sure that you're okay before you leave. Because you've, depending on your assignment and who you've helped and who you've spoken to, you you may have had a lot of stuff put on your lap. So they want to make sure that you're okay before you leave. Yeah. And it, it is a rough process. It's like on the, on this last one, I sat through a deal 
with this uh, room full of survivors and man, I was, it, it touched me. Um, I mean, wow. And we had our thing and I'm like, all right, I'm good. You know, kind of feel like we, we always do. We're good. And then a couple months later, okay, cause that was in May. So it was about a month or so later, a month and a half. Uh, I was away. I don't remember where I was at teaching. So I was one night I was at the hotel, you know, standard thing for me is I'm watching TV. I've already talked to Michelle on the phone and now I'm just, you know, on my phone, you know, doing Facebook, whatever. And some show came on. I wasn't really paying attention to what it was, what the name of it was or anything, but the, the direct topic was about what, uh, I sat through, um, with that 30 something people at national police week. And within five minutes of it, I was reliving the session that I sat in with all these people. And I was like quickly trying to turn the television. Uh, Cause I was like, Oh crap. I don't, I don't, I, I don't want to think about that before I go to bed tonight. Yeah. And, you know, and the main thing and everything is, you know, having that peer, that peer team, having that wellness benefit at the agency having everybody everybody that has the knowledge the resources available to them to, to just try to live a healthy life right and like it made me think when you know several years ago when you know you were doing your workouts and you were posting them and challenging me to do it even though i'm like 30 years older than you which isn't fair and uh I would try because that, that's my that's my mentality. I'm like, all right, I don't I don't care if you're the son of like my, my craziest cousin. Um, I'm gonna you know I'm not gonna let this young little whippersnapper beat me, right? Yeah, and that was fun because because that that was my mentality for so long. Now I'm just getting old and broken and have you know injuries and stuff. And that was one of my reliefs was working out right. and. And for, for a really, really long time. And now I'm, I'm, I have these things going where I, I can't and, or I make the excuses I can't because the doctor says I can't, but I want to, because um, that, that's a good mental relief for me for that. And then how do you, how do you teach somebody or tell somebody about, you know, living a healthy lifestyle if, you know, if you're drinking a 12 pack of beer every night and, uh, you know, three cheeseburgers at a time and a dozen donuts and, you know, and we don't, we don't have to live perfect lives. Just try to be healthy is, is another component of all of this. And yeah, there's a, I'll send it to you. There's an article I just read recently. Um, and I forget who wrote it. it I think it was, it may have been Mayo Clinic about it's called behavioral activation. Have you heard of that? I don't, I don't think I have, but man, it is uh, to me, this, these are the things as I researched this stuff in my own journey to, to put myself back together, I found a bunch of resources and I was like, man, why is no one talking about these things? They are perfectly suited for law enforcement and yet and never get brought up. So behavioral activation is a method of treating various mental illnesses or mental health disorders. So uh, depression is probably the most applicable and the best studied, but it's it's uh, the old argument, you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg? And so it's which comes first, being depressed or inactivity? Uh, and so 
which comes first curing your mental state or working out. So if you're, if you're depressed, you're not going to go work out. And then if you don't work out, you'll be depressed. So how the argument is, you know, which do we do first? Do we try to cure someone's depression so that they have the motivation to work out? Uh, and the argument and the conclusion, and it's really clear, the research is very thorough, is that in order to cure depression, you can almost always get behavioral activation. So doing something, activating yourself to, to literally just be active will begin, there's a book too about this called The Upward Spiral, but it it activates the things that you need to activate to cure depression. Pharmaceutical okay, free. So I, I, have, I have heard of that concept. I just haven't heard of that, that name that you said. You'll see it uh, uh, as an acronym, BA. I, agree, I wholeheartedly agree with that um, because I did. I would, I mean, even if I chose this afternoon and it's, 140 degrees down here in central Texas. Uh, I like when I'm at home, if I work from home, if I'm not traveling, uh, I have zero excuses to walk into my garage where all of my stuff is. And I have zero excuses for that. I have zero legitimate excuses for that. Um, and trying to think back to the times when, man, I would just go hit the gym for an hour, two hours, just solid and was in fantastic shape. And it, and it did. It, it, it helped me mentally. It, it really did because it gave me the confidence that I needed to go to work. Uh, one of the things that I needed to, to help go do my job and do it effectively and safely, you know, because when I started, I weighed like a buck 70. I was this little thing. And then um, after all the stuff that happened, OK, I'm going to go back, pack on 25 pounds of muscle and, uh, you know, try to be a little safer out there. And it is it for me. It was just clear. It was just clear because then I was. I mean, I wasn't like a, a fitness model or anything like that, but I'm in shape. I, I ate very, very decent. Um, I, I still drink a Dr. Pepper and stuff like that, but um, it, it did. It helped me mentally. and Therefore, my body felt better. I slept better. All the things that you need to help you overcome mm. the stress. Amen. So uh, let's say— And then grabbing your Bible— and all that so yeah and faith we could do a whole nother one on on the spiritual aspect of all this um and we probably will um let's let's wrap up i mean i appreciate your conversation but let's just say you know someone's listening who has some authority to impact their peer support program and they know it's kind of half-baked or it's still growing it's an infantile program um what's you know, when you're talking to an agency, what steps do you take toward a good peer support program? Uh, so let's say they already have, you know, a few peer support people on the team, but they, it's just not working very good. Where do they go? Who do they talk to? Uh, uh, what would you recommend? I think first, do we have that? Have they been properly trained by a vetted you know, entity that, that does the training, is it what they have right now? Is it effective? If it's not, why not sit down, start cussing and discussing on why this is not being effective? Um, finding additional trainings like, you know, I, I, I don't even know how much training I've had. Um, I went through Copline, the International Law Enforcement uh, Suicide Hotline. I've been through their 40-hour crisis training 
Uh, I've been through the ICISF, uh, assisting individuals in crisis and the group crisis. I've been through my law enforcement chaplain training and, and I continue to go to conferences and because you, you can't stop because there's new things that come out. There's new ideas, there's new philosophies, there's new books, new podcasts uh, to go out and help. And so you can't just let them stay there and just go, okay, we sent, sent you to that one class. Now you're good. Um, what resources are available to everybody uh, that they're going to help? What resources are available to them if they become you know overwhelmed with things? What truly laying out the the, the pros and the cons for their organization and you're really trying to sell it, but making sure everybody's trusted that, that to me, I think that would be the thing. Make sure your peers are vetted. They can't just be the popular guy. And this is who the chief or the sheriff wants They They have to be trusted. They have to be. Um, and by, by the majority, right. There's always gonna be that one person who's like, eh, I don't think Gentry should do this. I don't like it. Uh, I don't like the color of his hair, whatever. But as a whole, is this person trusted? Are they competent in being able to do this? And that, that's what I would look at first. Amen. Awesome, man. Well, I very much appreciate your time. Hey, you Thank work. you so much. Yeah. If this podcast helped you, it'll probably help someone else. If you would share it with someone you know, and if you want to share it with people you don't know, you can take five seconds and leave a review and five stars. It helps tremendously. Thank you.